from the Sunshine State, this is Tampa Bay's Tan Talk. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friend, Corey, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than flacarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, flacarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at flacarshows.com. Maven Entertainment presents a John Schneider film, Stand On It, a tribute to Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham's Smokey and the Bandit. We bet that you can't drive to Austin, pick up 400 cases of Yeller Local, and have it all back here within 24 hours. That was a movie, and in the movie, it was 28 hours. Got yourself a deal. Even if beer is legal where we pick it up, you gotta have a permit to transport it back across state lines, and you gotta be a distributor, and last time I checked, you ain't. Violet, fill my thermos. Let's haul ass. Got the one and only Frosty the you-know-what here, Duke boy. Come on, son, we're burning daylight. We got to get back, win the bet, collect the money, so stand on it, son. Can't you run a red light in my town? He is very good. You are really bad. You know the back of his trunk says ROY. Your name is Roy and I like to drive. Get in, why don't you? Oh, you're cute. And you're young. You got something I want. And I'll chase you to hell and gone to get it back. John Schneider as The Duke, Cody McCarver as Roy, Mindy Robinson as Fred, Dion Baia as Sonny, and Tyrus as Sheriff Cletus T. Necessary. Things are about to cook, and things are about to rock. In John Schneider's Stand On It, it's action-packed. Car chases, car jumps and crashes, Hilariously funny. 400 cases of bootleg beer. And they're headed eastbound and down. And it's good fun at its finest. I ain't had this much fun since I watched the Dukes of Hazard every day after school. ESU dipstick. Mike Cook as Roscoe number one. And Johnny Rock as Roscoe number two. These two dipsticks may just get her done catching the dew. Let things cook and rock. Papa, you're in the wrong lane. 
we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. I like to drive. You're driving me crazy, son. And now... Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. Again? Nothing up my sleeve. Presto! <laughs> no doubt about it. I gotta get another hat. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Rick Derringer, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you miss any of our 592 or three shows, don't forget to check out our website, Nostalgic Radio and Cars, the archive page, which is where all our shows are waiting for you to click and listen. Good evening, Bobby. How are you? On the phone! <laughs> no, not yet. I will be on the phone. You will be on the yes. Okay. Boy, do we have an exciting show for you tonight. Yes, sir. We have uh, not one, but we have two guests coming on. And, uh, you know, uh, Meekums is this week. Okay. Starts this week. And uh, that's the big auction. 3,000 cars. I mean, this is, you know, I was reading up. They did over $500 million in sales last year. I think Arm was the next one, somewhere in the $400 million in automotive sales. And I think Gooding was like 150 million, and Barrett was somewhere in between, uh, probably in the 300 million dollars. I think about that. That's billions of dollars spent on collector cars. So, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, sports car guys, race car fans, the classic car market is alive and well. So, uh, the little clip I played is uh, a movie trailer called Stand On It. It's put together by uh, and produced by John Schneider of Dukes of Hazard fame. And John will be coming on our show here probably in the next uh, two or three weeks or something like that. He's going to be promoting that show. He's out touring, and he's also got a song, many songs out there, um, as you all recall, he sang. And he's been in a few other little movies. Um, so real interesting. And it was only a matter of time before they went ahead and did a remake of the original Smoking and Ben. And i got to tell you, that is a cult classic. Um, Dave Martin, Martina, was on our show here last year, year before last sometime. He owns the original pilot car uh, that was the, well, let's just call it the inspiration for the Smoking the Bandit car. That was the car that they made, the, the, the pilot car, the prototype, the very first one they ever did, and uh, which was also a GM promotional car, Pontiac GM promotional car. And because um, it was started life as a 76, then became a 77, then they made it a, uh, a feature car, and it was used for the, all the movie or the magazine publications, introducing the 77 model. And lo and behold, um, Hal Needham and uh, Burt Reynolds saw that and said, hey, that is the car. That's going to be our key movie car, chase car. And today it's, uh, it's iconic, the 77, even the 78, black and gold, Hearst. Uh, Trans Am Pontiacs are um, very, very, very sought after. They're made two different versions of it. There's an SE and then there's an SE um, LE. So the one's a limited edition and then the other one's a special edition. And I can't remember the differences. Uh, probably the sunroof or the T-tops or something like that. Anyway, um, 
Bobby, how are we doing? We have our guest on the line. Not yet. We're working on that. Okay. Did I write the number down right? You know, my chick is crying. I was just thinking about that. I got a voicemail. You got a voicemail. Well, you know what's funny? Because I just texted him, and I know he's on standby. And, you keep uh, on talking there and just leave that number keep, out for me, and I'll come over there and check it out. Okay, you come here and do that because, you know, my uh, hieroglyphics these days are... Um, yeah, look, these cave writings are a little... Uh, well, actually, I, she just sent me a text. He's listening right now. We'll post on Twitter. Okay, so uh, okay. hang on. You want to come over quick? there. You just yeah, keep yeah, yeah, doing yeah. that I thing. Just, You're good at talking. I'm, I'm good at yakking. So here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, sports fans. You know, the, you know me, I have a tendency to... Uh, well, being a junkie, guy uh junk and me i'm a magnet and junk just kind of gravitates to me so um what happens is is that people over time have come to call me when they've got some interesting stuff for sale and a lot of these guys are getting into their well let's just say up in age not that i'm a spring chicken or anything like that but um yeah, I guess. Guess sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I did write the phone number down wrong. But hey, you know what? That's uh, uh, yeah, Bobby will straighten it up. Anyway, we'll have our first guest on the show. But anyway, uh, so over the weekend, we were invited to go check out this old garage. Now the gentleman's up in age, and he's had some health issues and stuff, and uh, he basically. Um, said, I need to sell this stuff. Now, he hadn't been in the building in four years. And I don't think anything else but maybe some critters had been in that yard. But when we went in there, it was full of some really, really just a lot of stuff, primarily Jaguars. Okay. So there was a 150 in there, uh, drophead coupe, which, you know, some of you guys want to Google it real quick. And then there was a 120 or 140 uh, drophead coupe. And then there was an E type in there. And then there was an MGA. And then there was an MGB. And then there was mountains and mountains and mountains of parts. And I'm in the process of trying to figure out how to help this guy out because he needs to liquid it. And believe me, Bobby, do I need any more parts in our garage? Mm, I don't think so. No, not no, anytime soon. We, we need to. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce our uh, first guest for the evening. This is an old buddy of ours, a fellow musician. Well, I shouldn't say I'm not a musician. I'm just tinker with the car. But this gentleman is a real musician. But anyway, he is also the, uh, let's just say, the voice of Meek. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, John Craman. John, how you doing, buddy? Hey, doing doing great, Robert. Glad we had a chance to get connected. We did, did yeah. If I yeah. would have written the number down right the first time, we would have called you three, four minutes ago. But that's good. You're here, and that's the most important thing. Right on, brother. So tell us. Thir- I was reading the 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 um, uh, PR statement. Thirty car collections. You're going to be auctioning off thirty car collections. I mean, there's 30 guys out there that have amazing car collections that are going to be auctioned off between uh, the 6th and, and whenever. Tell us about those car collections. They sound pretty amazing. Some of them I'm pretty impressed with. Yes, indeed. Well, first of all, keep in mind that Meekum's Kissimmee auction, which runs January 6th through the 16th, 11 days, is in fact the world's largest collector car auction, bar none. Undisputed. So no surprise that we're going to have oh, just an incredible amount of not only collections um, that that literally range everything from A to Z. I mean, we'll have we'll have five thousand dollar cars and love cars worth in excess of a million dollars. And I think it's it's um, what I'd like to make clear to your listeners in your area, it's in your back 
in your backyard. Yeah. This auction is open to the public. Uh, $20 in advance at Mecham.com for tickets, $30 at the door, total access to the cars, the auction arena, uh, wear comfortable shoes, and plan on spending the all day there because it is it is a site that just is almost unbelievable. And what we're doing is we're revved up. We are anticipating smashing our record that we did last year, uh, which the auction, uh, well, we call it our January uh, in Florida, we did just there alone $141 million, a, a big part of the numbers you had talked about earlier, uh, of, of, of our record year of $578 million, surpassing any dollar number that any auction company has ever done right in the middle of this pandemic. And what it does is, and you touched on it a bit, it really indicates just how strong and important the collector car market is right now. It makes us all feel good to work on it, the garage, to wax them, drive them, cruise them. It's a safe way to dodge this virus. And people are saying, hey, you know, life is short. I'm going to go for it. And it's, it's wild, and we're there, to, we're there to accommodate. So you've looked at the list, too. Yep. What are some of the cars that uh, this time around really get your interest? Well, you know, probably the car, the car, there's actually, there's a couple that I'd like to mention. Mm-hmm. The first one is really considered to be the holy grail of all custom cars, known as the Hirohata Merc, uh, yes. commissioned by a guy by the name of Bob Hirohata uh, back in the early 50s. It's a 1951 Mercury Club Coupe that was customized by the famed Barris Brothers, and it really put the custom car market and the Mercury, the 49 through 51 Merc, as sort of the poster child for the for the lead sled. This exact car is coming out of an owner that has had it since 1959. Unfortunately, he's passed away. We're working with the McNeil family. I'm selling that car. We're expecting well north of a million dollars. It's been restored. It was a Pebble Beach winner. Um, it's part of the National Historic Registry. It's spent time in a glass house on a mall in Washington, D.C. Really excited about this car. I've known about this car my entire life, and I've had a chance to do some of the promotional videos on it, and it's just incredible. The other thing I'm looking forward to, Robert, is pretty typical for Mecham. About 10% of our inventory are Corvettes, by far the number one most volume individual model. We've got almost 400 Corvettes consigned from all eight generations. And in the big scope of the auction, uh, about 500 cars total are going to be selling at no reserve. Absolute sales. So just an incredible lineup, everything from A to Z, bigger and better than ever. And we invite everybody to come out and check it out. Everybody's welcome. Give me your thoughts on this. Now, you know, Barrett Jackson, um, he runs predominantly almost all his cars are no reserve. So they're, they're guaranteed to sell. And I think if they're the salon cars, which are half a million dollars or more, then you can put a reserve on it. What are your thoughts on, you know, because even, you know, you've got some $40,000, $50,000, $100,000 cars, $30,000 and people put reserves on them. Do you think that the, the no reserve, what's your thoughts on the no reserve versus the reserve? What's your thoughts on it? Yeah, a very, very common question. Um, we really believe in the reserve concept. Okay. I think that's why we've exploded to be the world's largest collector car auction company. We have more auctions. We generate more income. We, we do more cars than any other auction company in the world. 
and I think one of the main reasons, Robert, is the fact that it's, it gives a potential consigner the peace of mind. If they want to protect their investment, if they want to make sure that if it doesn't bring a minimum number, the number that they want, they're under no obligation to sell the car. That's been our business model, and it has worked out to be it has worked out to be so good. If we look at 2021 as an example, we sold about 90 with most of the entries with the reserve. We sold about 90 percent that we call it our sell rate or our sell ratio of all the vehicles that cross the block at Meekum. Uh, back pre-pandemic. Uh, a strong number would be somewhere in the 65 to 70 percent range. Really? We beefed it up with additional and a smoother online bidding process. That's become a huge part of what we do. Telephones have always been a big part, but a lot of online bidders. But having that reserve option and having our high-energy televised collector car auctions, having the people there, the excitement, it draws spectators, it draws the buyers, it draws the sellers. It's the magic formula. And I want to mention, while we've got just a moment, uh, for those that are used to watching Meekum on television, we're moving. Uh, starting this year, 2022, on a multi-year contract, we're going to be over, we're joining the folks over Discovery on Motor Trend TV live, and we're also going to be on Motor Trend Plus, their streaming service. You may know that NBCSN went dark. The sports network literally uh, uh, stopped their channel. We had the opportunity to move, and we could not be any more excited about beginning this new relationship with really the premier uh, automotive content provider, the folks at Motor Trend Group. So, now let me ask you this: Are you going to get more exposure um, by switching over to Motor Trend? I mean, are you going to get longer, you know, exposure as far as you know people being able to sit there and watch, you know, more cars go through the auction? Yeah, let me tell you what they're doing. We're going to be televised. We're going to start on the 12th, which is the Wednesday, January, mm-hmm. and, and, and run for four days straight. We're going to be live at noon to 6 p.m. every day, but listen to this. At 6 p.m., they're going to turn right around, and they're going to re-air that segment in its entirety, mm. in prime time, giving those folks that didn't get a chance to see it during the daytime live to watch it during prime time for a total of 12 hours, six of which, the first six hours of it, is totally live, unprecedented wow. schedule, 24 hours of coverage coming up at Beacon Kissimmee. And that just adds to, adds to the excitement of the event. It, it's just really, really cranked up about it this year, as you can tell. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, nothing excites me more. You know, when you walk into, a, let's say, the typical sports bar, and without mentioning any names or anything like that, you know, it's always sports. <laughs> but on occasion... On occasion, when you guys are live doing an auction, I am th- enthralled with the fact that here I go, I sit in there, and everybody's watching Meekum. And they are glued to Meekum and the cars and the collector car hobby, so to speak, more so than they are sports because they're used to watching sports, and it's kind of like the mundane thing to do, I guess, when you walk into a sports bar. But when you see the car stuff, that's exciting. And then everybody can point, and they can relate to it. That's the beauty of your auction. When you walk through that auction, it's not like you necessarily have to buy anything. Just walking through there is like the entire automotive history of Detroit all under your tents. It's incredible. That A lot of people have told us, and I agree, that it is the best car show that they've ever attended. I call it the car show with a pulse because we all go to car shows and we all love it. Um, but, you know, they're, I'm, I'm not going to say they're all the same. That's not fair. But there's a missing ingredient to me after, well, we're, we're beginning our 15th year of television with this auction. Uh, it's been, been a long haul. I've been full-time as part of the Mika management team since 2006. But it's the, it's the cars moving. You hear them. 
There's a lot of action. The auction, we, we do one car about every two minutes, so it's very, very fast-paced. It, it generates so much excitement. It adds an element to what we're all used to the car show that takes it to the next level. Well, I'll tell you what, you and Dana and, and your entire team there have done a, a, an absolute spectacular job. And it's not only that, it's when you're at that auction, the, the people that you meet, the stories that you hear, and the, and the relationships that you build. I mean, it's spectacular. Absolutely, and that's another big important factor is really the, the, the social aspect of interacting with like-minded, car-crazy people. Right and there's, there's, there, there's probably, honestly, there probably is no better place on the planet to be able to do that. Not only to see great cars, watch auction action, put your finger on the pulse of what the market is all about and how prices are, but that's to interact with the people that are there. And um, it's just, it, 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 it is such an amazing event. The fact that we kick off the new year with our biggest event right off the bat, what it does, Robert, it really does set the stage for the remainder of the calendar year in the sale collector cars. It sets the bar, not just at auction, but anywhere. People are really going to be paying attention to what the collector car market is doing as we enter 2022. My prediction is it's going to be stronger and hotter than it's ever been, which is a carryover from what we've experienced in the past year and a half. Ah, well, that's what the word on the street is. John, one more time, if you want to find out about it and how, and how they get there and all the good information that you've got and, uh, and the list of cars, where do they go? Yeah, well, the first thing, Mecum.com, and that is spelled M-E-C-U-M. Tons of information there. We're the Osceola Heritage Park, January 6th through the 16th. Gates open at 8 o'clock every day. The first car is going to run uh, at 10 o'clock, except for the second Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We'll start at 9 o'clock. Remind everybody, come on out. Don't have to buy or sell. Get your ticket at Mecum.com in advance for 20 bucks. It's only 30 bucks at the door. Kids 12 and under free. And... We look forward to seeing everybody out there, including you, my friend. I will be there. You can count on it. I'll see you this weekend. Take care, John. Thank you very much for hanging out with us here again. Thanks for your interest, brother. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, Bobby. I guess it's almost time to get our next special guest on for the evening. So uh, Bobby's going to fire up the, uh, what's this thing called? Play a little well, music. actually, we found a cart machine. So well, uh, <laughs> We do. Oh, a vintage cart <laughs> machine. Interesting. All right, hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Here's a little Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back.
Okay, we're back, and you're tuned into Nostalgic Freedom Cars, and it's time to introduce our very special guests for the evening. It's part two with the legendary founding member and lead guitarist, record producer, songwriter, Steve Cropper of Booker T and the MGs. Hey, Steve, how you doing this evening? I'm good. I want to meet that guy sometime. You want to meet that guy sometime? I had, let me tell you something. Green Onions is one of those songs that I don't think you it's timeless and you never get tired of that song. That is just one. Well, I never thought I'd be part of a song that would outlive it. It looks like that would make do it. I don't know. We'll see. When you, when, next year. when you sat down to write that song, what were the, what, what, what was, and I don't know if I asked you this last week or not, but I mean, what was the, how'd, the, how'd that riff come about? How did you come up with that? Well, I didn't come up with that riff. Booker T. Jones did. Okay. And, uh, so we were jamming around in the studio waiting for an artist to show up. And as far as we knew, he never show up, showed up, but he did. They said he came to the record shop up front, but he couldn't sing. It, it was a, a Sunday morning, and so he had been up all night long singing on Saturday night. He, he didn't have a voice, so he didn't come back back to the control room or anything. So uh, we were just jamming around to keep our chops up on some old blues, and uh, Jim Stewart was ready to record, so he just pushed the record button. And he said, "Guy, we got through. We're just laughing, and you know, it was just a filler song, is all it was." And uh, he said, "Guys, you want to come up and listen to that? We don't, you recorded that?" He said, "Yeah, I recorded it. Come listen to it." And then he says, after the end of it, we're all kind of laughing again, and we didn't take him serious. He said, "If we decided to put something like this out, do you guys have anything we put on the B side?" In those days, records had A side, B side. <laughs> So I looked at Booker and I said, we all just were dumbfounded. I said, no, we don't have anything. I looked at Booker and I said, Booker, about two weeks ago, you played me some riffs you had written for the might be good vocal songs. And uh, can you play one of those riffs? And he said, well, come down to the organ and I'll play it and see if that's what it And it was. I said, that's the one right there. And <laughs> three cuts later, we had that song. <laughs> the only change that uh, Jim Stewart made during the song I started with that thing I do in the middle. You just played part of it. After the solo, I do this tune, tank thing. And he said, you know, you're doing that in the middle. Why don't you do that on the intro? And when it comes to that same eight bars that you're, you're doing that in, just play a solo. And I did. That's my first solo. And it hit him so hard on the on the meter, he turned me off. So you could barely hear that. It goes almost, he almost turned it off. Wow. You hear him creeping it back in. <laughs> he listened to it. But that song myself, I, I, I know I talk about the song like it was yesterday. Well, that's easy enough. But I feel so removed from that song. Uh, I don't really remember what I was thinking when I was playing that. I just went through the motions, you know. And uh, so the thing at the end of the solo, I do a Jim with a lot of echo, and, and Jim Stewart heard an echo, and that all worked. <laughs> so so where'd the name Green Onions come from? Well, you know... Here's the deal. And that song, I knew I knew it had a dance beat. The other one, I didn't care so much about. It was okay. It's on, a, on the flip side called Behave Yourself, a blues song. Well, that's good good news, I guess. Blues is blues. But uh, this one had a dance beat to it. You could dance to it. So I called Scotty Moore. As some people would know who that name is. Scotty Moore was the guitar player with Elvis. That's probably right. And he he wanted to engineer all the time. So, they, so Sam Phillips, after he sold Elvis' contract, had a lot of money, so he bought a lathe. So I called Scotty and said, Scotty, we cut something yesterday. I think it's pretty good. Would you cut me a dub on it? And he said, sure, bring it on over. So he's cutting it. He said, man, that's pretty catchy. 
So on a Tuesday morning, I take it down to the WLOK radio station, and I was friends with a guy on drive time. I used to stop by there on my way back home, back to the studio, stop off there because I had like an hour, and I'd sit and talk to him and whatever. And I said, play this. See, tell me what you think. We cut this yesterday or Sunday, and I had Scotty cut me a dub on it yesterday. And it's a play, and he, he plays the intro, and he backs it up. And I thought, well, I said, what's the matter? You don't like it? He said, no, I love it. I just want to hear, hear it again and make sure I like what I'm hearing. Well, I did what I didn't know at the time. He switches the switch, and all of a sudden the phone started lining up lighting up and he would say i don't know we're gonna find out real quick <laughs> he said what's the name of your band and what do you call this i said we don't have a name so <laughs> i take it back from him go to go to my job at the record shop and mrs axton who owned that at the time and she always owned it anyway she, that was jim stewart's sister sell Axton. and uh, she said there's something going on and and i'm gonna call jim and tell him about it but you must have something to do with it and I said, you're not talking about this, are you? And it was a <laughs> Her phones were, like, were ringing off the wall. Who is that? I heard it this morning on the radio. I want to hear it again. Where can I buy it? She said, I don't know. She calls Jim at work, and Jim came in and said, well, guys, we, we're going to have to call everybody, get everybody in. We're going to have a meeting on this. So we do. We have a meeting. We get everybody back there. So we got to come up with a name for a group, and we got to come up with a name for the song. So Louis Steinberg, who played on that, says, Let's name it Onions. We said, why you want to name it Onions? He said, because that's the stankingest music I ever heard. <laughs> well, it may be, but I said, Onions have a little negative side, too. It gives some people indigestion. makes other people cry when they cut into one. And uh, I said, let's call it Green Onions. Everybody would have that on their, you know, on their plate for dinner or whatever and uh, as, a, as a summer vegetable. And everybody loved the Green Onions. And they said, let's call it Green Onions. I said, okay, let's do it. So then Booker T and the MGs, and that was the MGs did stand for the MG car. Really? Was, yeah, Chip Spoman, the other engineer and, and producer at the time, and our director, had a Triumph, an MG Triumph, and we named it the MGs. So Jim called us all in later and said, we're going to change the name of the group. We're not changing anything. <laughs> we got to, because uh, <laughs> they said they... The British Motor, he got a letter from the British Motor Company. He said, we don't want to endorse anything. It has anything to do with music. You know? So we said, well, we'll call ourselves the Memphis Group, <laughs> which we did. We were that forever, the Memphis Group. Booker T and the Memphis Group. And I, oh. and I got to thinking after that, I said, it's, it's plural. It's with an S. It's not Booker T and the Memphis Groups. That would make sense. So okay. We kept for years. That is a real story. That's amazing. Now, you're, you said your roots were kind of like uh, in gospel music. Tell us how gospel has influenced blues, jazz, you know, a lot of the, the, the music out of the Delta. <laughs> so, uh, Shamika Copeland, back a couple of years ago, said, you know, country music ain't nothing but, but blues with a twang. <laughs> <laughs> blues with a twang. Okay. So she might be right. I don't know. I think it's pretty cool. But uh, the, we didn't have, where I was from was a farm in Missouri, so we didn't really have radio. We, we had a little bit of radio in West Plains, Missouri, and I used to listen to that all the time. And they played things like, you know, uh, what's your name? Uh, had How much is that dog in the wind? Peggy Lee and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> so when we got to Memphis, I turned on the radio. We had radio finally for the first time. 
and I heard gospel music. I never looked back. I thought that is the best feeling music I have ever heard. So I just stayed with it. And I I pray to God all the time, and I say, please forgive me for changing your song to a woman. So I guess he's kept me alive all this time, so I'm still here. Well, you just celebrated, what, your 80th birthday here back in October? Yeah, I don't like it. You know, nobody likes them to be their age, so I refuse to be my age. I well, there's know. nothing wrong with that. Cause... I said, you know, everybody lives, everybody dies, but when I die, I'm going to die young. <laughs> <laughs> the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the early 90s, you and the rest of the Booker T and the MG guys, uh, the Memphis group, if you will, or MG uh, Carr, uh, we're inducted in the, to, into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Tell us what that experience is like. Tell us what what you well, have to go through to prepare know, for it. It, it. it is what it is, but it comes and goes. And I think if you take any of that stuff serious, you're going to drive yourself nuts. So <laughs> I, I just remain to be crazy and funny and, you know, keep my sanity. So there you go. I don't read my press a lot. I don't really listen to interviews. I know guys that used to do TV shows. They go running home, make sure they could see it. Because usually most of them tape at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and then they're on that night. So they're back there watching. And I, I didn't care about watching. I don't I don't watch the movies either. And, you know, I know that stuff. I don't care about it. Did, but Once I listen to something I'm producing 100,000 times. I don't know how many times, but over and over and over. When it's when the record is out, it's done, I don't listen to it anymore. I may hear it on the radio. And, and it's fun to hear you. Hear your stuff back on the radio, and I say the greatest experience that a songwriter or a musician will ever hear is something he wrote or something he played on for the first time on the radio. And I remember my first time, I almost wrecked the car when I heard <laughs> the first Green Eyes or whatever on the radio. And I used to laugh. I know you're a DJ, and I used to laugh And when they'd say in Memphis, you heard it first. I said, it's already number one with a bullet. You heard it last. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. That is life. That's Memphis for you. So, when 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 did you produce your first record? Was it was with M, Booker T and MGs, or was it? You know, I really don't remember exactly the date that they changed and started putting the guy's name that actually produced records. It, uh-huh. Most of the stack stuff said produced by staff, <laughs> and that was everybody. And Jim Stewart made a decision years ago: if the musician played on an instrumental, he should get part of the writer's song. So that's what he used to do. Four guys are on a record, four guys split the stuff. If six guys are on a six guys split it. And that's the way it works all during the whole time. And the thing about Booker T and EMGs, we had a six-band team of, of finally with Hayes and Porter added to Booker T and EMGs. And we split royalties on all of the records that sold at Stacks. Now, did you have to write up individual contracts every time you know you added, subtracted members, or how did that work, or was it just an honored system? No, but every time we renegotiated the contract with Booker T and EMGs, the price went up. <laughs> right, the okay. production thing stayed the same all the time. All right, now Stax, what, eventually, did it become Satellite and then eventually get absorbed into Atlantic Records, or how did that work? No, it was just the opposite of that. It was Satellite to start with, Satellite Records. Okay. And and uh, Jim Stewart got a letter from some lawyer in California and said, there's already a Satellite Records. So you're going to have to change your name. So they set up all night long, I remember that, and they came up with Stax, Stewart Axton. Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton was his sister. Okay. Her, her married name, Axton. And that's S-T-A-X. It made sense. Okay. And then... And, I mean, the actual spelling would be S-T-A-C-K-S, I guess. But Stewart Axton spells Stax. 
so they put a logo we called uh, Ronnie Stutes in, and he did some artwork and did a stack of records. Huh. And then there was Al Bell, and when Al Bell took over, he changed it to the finger snap way later. And that was in, I forget the year they, they changed that, probably 67 or somewhere around in there. How hard was it for small uh, record companies, record produ- productions, to 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 get distribution to get the records out there? Or was it a lot of it left up to radio and disc jockeys and people like that? Well, I remember Al Jackson saying one time, we, we listened to a track, we were listening back to songs. And somebody said, man, that sounds like a hit. And Al said, hey, Steve. They're all hits until release, so I, he's right about that. <laughs> let the audience decide if it's good or bad. You you know, you decide what you want to put out, but let the audience decide. Okay. Some records come out, and they immediately, within two or three weeks, and it know, they know it's not going to make it, so they put out something else. And that's happened many times. So, Did you have some records, some songs that were flops as well, but in your opinion, were pretty good songs that uh, maybe later kind of hit the big time? Well, I, I, I don't really, I can't think of anything, really. I, some I thought maybe should have made it. Nobody's fault but mine on Otis Redding, I thought was a good record. And there's some of them almost made it big, but didn't quite make the, the number one jump, you know. They didn't now, jump up to number one. Now, so people used to say, how's your record doing? I'd say, well, it's on the charts, 100 with an anchor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, you did, you're, you're credited with, uh, did you write or co-write Knock on Wood and then sit in, by, sit in a dock of, the, dock of the Bay, right? Co-write, yeah. Co-write, okay. So, so uh, you know, Eddie Floyd and I together wrote Knock on Wood. Uh, the thing I did a lot of times with Otis, I, he, Otis Redding always had... 15, 14, 15 ideas unfinished. And so I got to finish them. He trusted me, and he'd say, hey, see if you like this groove. I said, well, I like it. Uh, you know, let's change it into this. And I would help him write different verses, you know, bridges. I would write the music to a bridge or something like that. That's what I did with Doc of the Bay. I wrote uh, one of the verses and the bridge. And, the, and uh, okay, so the bridge is the basically the chorus, right? Well, it can be, yeah. Uh, the thing about, uh, you mentioned Knock on Wood, the funny thing about that song, it's different from any other song. It starts on a fourth change, which is a bridge change by most standards. I don't want to lose right on the fourth change, right on an A, back to E. It's in the key of E, but it starts on an A change. <laughs> and so I can tell you about uh, Knock on Wood a little bit. So Eddie and I knew that we had a, a pretty good potential song there cut the next day. So we, we believed in it so much, I called Wayne Jackson over in West Memphis from his gig, and I, he was on stage, and I told the waitress there, I said, when he comes off stage, have him call a Lorraine Motel and ask for Eddie's room and, and get uh, get us. We need him to help us on, with the horns. So uh, Eddie, Eddie and I knew we had a pretty good song, and, and we couldn't. I, I know I worked for at least an hour or more on an intro. I couldn't come up with anything that fit the song. So I looked at Eddie, and I said, Eddie, I wonder what in the midnight hour would sound like backwards. He says, I don't know. Play it for me. So I did. <laughs> it's just follow the dots up and not follow them down, follow them back up. <laughs> it seemed to work. What is... Both of them were hits. Do what? Is performing equally as gratifying to you as writing the songs and coming up with the music? Yeah, pretty much so. I mean, they're totally different. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys come off the road. They can play. They've been out playing for 200,000 people all the time. 
jump in the studio and realize, man, it takes a whole other different approach to cut a track or something. When they're, they're there to entertain people, and that, that they do a good job, but they don't do a great job. And the thing about Booker MGs, for some reason, I guess because we didn't work a lot, we were able to do both. We could entertain people and play the music like the record. Did you guys have a manager back in the day that scheduled you a lot, or did you guys pretty no, much handle no, your things? We, we pretty much handled our own, and I always have. Steve Cropper has never had a personal manager, period. Wow. A lot of advice from a lot of great people. I always surround my, myself with good people. But uh, PR work and stuff like that, that's something I don't really know a lot about in today's market. So I reach out to people to do some PR stuff. So Duck and I called each other. We were talking one day. We were very good friends. And we said, you know, we can carry amps and book our plane flights and all that. We don't need a manager paying 10% of our money to do this and do that. And I remember Matt Guitar Murphy with the Blues Brothers said, you know, I don't mind you guys having a manager, but he's not getting into my T-shirt business. <laughs> there you go. All right. Speaking of the Blues Brothers. Matt Guitar Murphy followed up with that little speech <laughs> yeah yeah i like that one i'm getting a book you anywhere but getting 10 percent of my money and so i had these guys they were accountants here in nashville that i thought were great they were doing a great job for everybody and uh, so i went to them one day about hiring them and they said well you know we get 10 percent." i said you want 10 percent of something i've already done in the past oh yeah we'll need that i said well, then you're the wrong guys i'm talking to <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely it's not you know, an annuity. 10% of it, midnight hour, and green onions, knock on wood, knock on the bay. It ain't going to happen, guys. I'm sorry. So they wanted to make it retroactive? Yeah. No, that's... That doesn't make sense to me. Anything you do, I'll pay you to do anything going forward from here at this point on, once we sign the paperwork. I'll be glad to. You never look back, but don't you don't try to get into my past. Yeah, absolutely not. No, that's yours. I couldn't afford you in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Won't be able to in the future. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's talk about the Blues Brothers. How did that come about? How did your relationship with the Blues Brothers, and did you work with Dan Aykroyd? And uh, and, I know you worked with Sam and Dave, right? The original kind of like Soul Man Blues. Go ahead. The only only time we ever played live with them was at Stacks Boat Tour in 67. Oh, really? And and that was, you know, what was so great about that, too, it started in England and went around Europe a bit. But uh-huh. the thing was that nobody that I know of has ever had the same guys playing on their record on stage. <laughs> and that's what we did different. Okay. So the studio band went and backed all those artists, Eddie Floyd and Sam and Dave and, uh, and uh, Otis Redding and so forth. So we were kind of used to doing both. But you asked me about the Blues Brothers, how we come about. Yeah. Well, we had finished two tours, two world tours with Levon Helm. And so when the band split up, they all decided they were going to make individual solo records on their own. And so that was the band. He put a band together with him and, and the Saturday Night Live Horns. So when Steve Martin went to John Belushi and said, hey, I'm doing these shows out in the Universal Amphitheater. He had the, the hit record King Tut at the time. Right, yeah. They told me that for me to do the show, I'd have to have an opening act. He said, I want you guys to open for me. So John and Danny, John said, you know, Danny and I don't do stand-up comedy. He said, I know that. I don't care what you do. And John says, well, can we play music? He said, if that's what you want to do, play music. So 
he went to Tom Bones Malone, our trombone player, who was at that time the leader of the horns of Saturday Night Live. He goes to him and said, Steve Martin has asked us to do these shows. Should we take the whole Saturday Night Live band? Tom Bones Malone, bless his heart, says, well, we could, but it'd be better if we got Dunn and Cropper because they're old road dogs. I don't know where he got that from. But anyway, that's, we'd already done two world tours with him, so I guess we've been out there for a couple of years. So that's that's how it all got started. And Doug Dunn and I didn't do anything different than what we the way we played in high school is the same way we played behind Belushi and Ackroyd. And we got a lot of flack on that. So what are you guys doing playing with a couple of comedians? Whoa, wait a minute. John Belushi fronted a band when he was in Canada way before he became a comedian and sang. And Dan Eckhart actually is playing a harmonica, believe it or not. He is that good. And uh, people didn't know, they didn't know it. Writers didn't know that at the time. So they got a lot of flack. What are these guys doing all these hit records for Stacks playing behind these comedians from, from Saturday Night Live? Well, they're actually musicians. That's the difference. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Were you ever, uh, did you ever guest host on Saturday Night Live, SNL, back in the day? I, n- I never, no, we were on it several times, but we never did guest anything, no. Okay. We were on it with the John and Danny and okay. the Blues Brothers. And they went out as, a, uh, originally, they did, I think, they did one skip as the Buzzy Bees. The Buzzy Bees? Boy Scout Camp kind of a thing. Okay. And uh, <laughs> if you remember correctly... They uh, they busted John for playing with his stinger. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so yeah. Anyway, uh, there was a skit that, that they kept working on. It wasn't quite right as as far as Lauren Michaels and everybody in the production world were concerned with. They said this not, but it'd be ready this weekend. Well, it wasn't ready. So they said, you know, that skit's not ready. It's just not happening. What are we going to do? So Lauren Michaels said. You know that thing, you go out and you do the Blues Brothers deal, you wear those glasses and funny hats and the suits and all that, and you go out and warm up the audience before Saturday Night He, They said, yeah. They said, well, he said, well, use that in place of the skit. Just go out there and do that. And so they did. They got so much mail, we we made a record. <laughs> so the uh, the shows we did for Steve Barn, I think there were nine. They recorded four of them. Out of those four recordings, they put together that album, which is one of the best. The briefcase is full of blues. And if it, if that album had not done what it did, there would have never been a movie. Because Danny had been trying to get that movie going for years, and they wouldn't go for it. But because it uh, sold so many records, I think it went triple platinum or more at the time. And that allowed Atlantic to put a little more pressure on Universal to say, hey, guys, you need to try this. Now, he already had, what, Animal House? Yeah. One South and a couple other movies under his belt. So they knew they had a property that would make them money. So they said, okay. But the script was just so corny, they didn't think it would work. Well, it did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, were you guys in the... Still working. Yeah. Well, were you in the movie, too? Both of them. Whoa, no kidding. Wow. They said, who were you? I said, well, it's real simple. There were two guitar players. One of them was black, one of them was white. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Me. I'm always trying to make fun out of everything. (laughs) So now the the Blues Brothers they still go out. You're 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 really on the road with them and have been until up until what? Most recently here? Are they still out there doing their uh, well, I would concert? Say most recently until this pandemic. But just before that, uh, I was out with Dave Mason. Oh really? Over here, and I told the guys in Europe, I said, "I'm not leaving you because I'm leaving you. I'm leaving you because 
if you can't get booked in the States, I don't want to play with you anymore. <laughs> well, now, we were over there over 19 years doing that. As we only did shows in in Europe, and that doesn't make sense to me. But it's, you know, and, and the other thing, I got tired of not playing. I never get tired of playing. But I got tired of catching three or four flights a day, going through three or four different countries, doing all that to get to the next gig. That was crazy. Well, I was just going to say, touring's got to be hell in a way, isn't it? Because, I mean, I know a lot of guys that well, do it three, four years, no, and then that's it. It, it is, and you, you go all day long, and you're miserable and all that. But, you know, that two hours on stage makes up for everything. You go, that wasn't all that bad. <laughs> that was crazy. So seeing that audience having a good time and dancing, jumping up and down, that is worth everything. It's it's worth your life, I'm telling you. Um, Dave Mason. Now, he we actually had Dave on our show, what was it, last year, Bobby, something like that? We had Dave on, and I guess he's out in Hawaii now or whatever. Right. He told us some Jimi Hendrix stories. And did you ever work with Jimi Hendrix? Because he was apparently in I Nashville. Know, but I knew him, and we talked about that. But but he he played on he played acoustic guitar on all of our around the watchtower oh that's right some other sessions he played on interesting and uh but jimmy and i would just uh, had a a respect for each other and i knew who he was and i went my god i'll never be able to play like that so the funny story the day i met him the girls up front knew never to disturb me when i'm mixing and we had a day off and I, i was mixing and uh, so Denny came back and said, I hate to disturb you. I know you told me not to, but there's a guy I drove all the way from Nashville just to see you. I said, you know, I can't see him now, Denny. There's no way. Can't do it. And, okay, I'll tell him that. So I go out about 5.15. I'm thinking everybody's gone in the afternoon. At 5 o'clock, everybody gets off. And I go up front, and Denny's still there. I said, what the hell are you doing here? She said, you know that guy that drove down? I said, yeah from Nashville, that guy said, yeah, that's his car still parked there. He's across the street having a cheeseburger. That's him with his back to you. Through, I can see through the window over there. And I said, well, I'm getting, I'm coming out to get something to eat, so I'll go over there and get a cheeseburger and sit next to him. And I introduced myself and say hello, and it was Jimi Hendrix. So we get to talking, and he says he plays a little guitar, and I go, okay, well, that's good. <laughs> I said, when we get through, I said, I, no, before that, I said, uh, is, have you played on anything I would know? And he said, well, I played on a little thing on Don Colvay. I said, you did what? He said, what is it called? All mercy or have mercy? Have mercy, baby. Have mercy on me. I said, you played on that? He said, yeah. I said, when we get through with our cheeseburger, can I take it across the street to the studio and you show me that lick? He said, absolutely. <laughs> I, hand, I take him across the street, hand him my guitar, he turns it upside down. I said, shit, man, I can't learn it like that. <laughs> <laughs> that is a true story. Wow. We were doing, when he played with the Isley Brothers, we were booked on the same bill by a fraternity, some college, I forget what the college was. It might have been Illinois State University, I can't remember. And they had uh, two uh, had a big long room, and, and when one band would quit, the other band would start. So we're playing, I look down, and there's Jimmy down watching me. I said, what is this kid doing up here? So I went over and watched him whenever they started. I'd, we get through tearing out, you know, just putting our stuff up or whatever. And I went over there and watched him for a while. So we did that back and forth for, I don't know, three or four sets. Wow. Steve, we are up against the clock. I want to thank you very, very much. Great stories. It was a pleasure having you. I mean, you have no idea. It was a true treat having you on the show, Steve. I appreciate that. And uh, I look forward to doing this again sometime. I'll have you down the road. Uh, we, will. we will. I'll be around. Don't worry about it. I'm- uh, all right. Yeah. Well, well, we'll see you when the next time I get to Nashville for NAM or something like that. But in the meantime, Steve Cropper, 
Booker T and MGs, I want to thank you a whole bunch, all right? My pleasure. Glad to do it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, listeners, we had a great show tonight. We had some pretty interesting guys on here. John Kramer from Meekum and uh, Steve Cropper from Booker T and the MGs. Green Onions, man. Check them out. In the meantime, I want to tell all my friends, don't forget, go to the auctions, go to the car shows, drive your cars, have fun with your cars. It doesn't matter if it's got three wheels, two wheels, four wheels, if it runs, if you got to push it. Just have fun with your car, man. That's the whole thing. Just go out there and do something. Get your wife involved. Get your kids involved. Get everybody involved. Cars are cool, man. So are motorcycles, too, if you got those two, two-wheel bikes and stuff like that, but mainly cars. And don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network. Don't forget to tell your friends. Follow us on social media. What's our social media, Bobby? It's Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, all nine yards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll tell you more stories about these uh, piles and piles of cars and parts and projects and stuff like that that I stumble on. Because there's a whole bunch of that stuff out there. And it's going to get really, really, really interesting. You're not going to get my stash, but you will see some pretty cool stuff. And we'll be talking about it from time to time. And we got some more musical guests coming up the rest of the month here. So don't forget, Marshall Tucker will be at Ruth Eckert. Uh, me comes this week, and then the Motocar Cavalcade in South Florida that takes place next uh, the end of the month, and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. In the meantime, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. WTAN, Clearwater, FM 106.1, WDCF, Dade City, FM 102.3, WZHR, Zephyr Hills, FM 104.3. Listen.